Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Telemedicine has been a buzzword since the earliest days of the internet. But unlike much of our digital economy, telehealth never quite took off. Last year, just 2% of office visits were virtual. Now, of course, though, doctors' offices are closed, and those virtual visits are the only option left. The question now is what happens next. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback. Today, we're joined by Darren Fonda, who has just published Barron's cover story on the future of digital health. Hey, Darren. Hey, Alex. Let's start with a big question. Where are we with telehealth? Well, as you pointed out, telehealth has been kicking around on the fringes of the medical system for many, many years. I think a lot of people have been reluctant to use it because they have wanted to see their doctor or medical practitioner in person. But it's gotten a big lift now with the social distancing measures that have been put in place and people's concerns about their own exposure if they go to a hospital or medical office. They don't obviously want to be exposed to the coronavirus, so everybody is more open to it now. And we're seeing a pretty big increase anecdotally in usage of telemedicine. The CDC and other officials are warning people who feel symptoms of the coronavirus not to rush to the ER or urgent care, but instead to call the doctor first. Now, those warnings could be a big opportunity for telehealth companies. So the Cleveland Clinic has reported that um, telemedicine visits are up to about 60,000 a month from fewer than 5,000 before the crisis. We've been able, with the help of leadership at the clinic, to be able to staff up. Uh, the demand for all visits have grown exponentially. Rural health systems are also reporting a big surge in telemedicine usage. And then the biggest publicly traded telemedicine company, Teladoc, has said that its online visits and virtual visits have surged by 100% in the last month or so. What used to be, you know, us doing high fives when we had a 10,000 visit day right. is now a normal Tuesday for us. Wow. So it's very difficult to get national statistics on this, but it does appear that telehealth is finally getting the kind of catapult that it's long needed to go from sort of the fringes of the healthcare system into the mainstream, at least for now. If I'm ready to see a doctor virtually, how does this all work? Well, I think it all depends on the system that you're using. It can be anything from your doctor or medical office setting up a Zoom or FaceTime video chat with you to going through one of the established telemedicine services. If it's a basic thing, like you need a prescription filled, if you know your doctor's office has gone to a virtual platform. It can be pretty easy and pretty seamless. I did that recently to get a prescription filled. So it can really be very easy to use. I don't think it has to be cumbersome. And it all depends on, you know, your medical practice and who you're going to. Okay. And technology often makes our lives easier. And, you know, it really has always amazed me at how resistant the people, doctors, the system regulations have been to telehealth. I mean, I remember in 1999, I was a intern at the U.S. Commerce Department, and I went to a hearing on Capitol Hill about telemedicine. You know, it was the next big thing. Darren, why do you think it took a global pandemic to make telehealth a real option? Well, I think you have to look at a lot of different um, factors uh, that had to come together for everybody to kind of get on board to using this. So 
one of the main impediments has been regulations. So there is a patchwork of state and federal regulations on use of telemedicine. Every state has their own rules. Every state has licensing requirements for physicians. Essentially, most of them require that physicians be licensed in the state in order to practice in the state, whether virtually or in person. There's also rules, for example, that for a telemedicine visit to occur, a patient and a physician must have a prior relationship so that they have seen each other in person so that the physician can prescribe medications online. That's another impediment that has not necessarily been changed with the crisis. What about insurance? I mean, obviously, we all deal with health insurance, or most of us deal with health insurance. That really determines the level of care we can get. Where are the insurers right now in terms of allowing telehealth and paying for it? So there's two big insurers. There's the federal government through Medicare and Medicaid, and then there's private insurance. Medicare has recently relaxed the rules and reimbursement policies for telemedicine to enable more people to use it and to enable all Medicare beneficiaries to have the service. State Medicaid rules differ. Some states may allow it, some states may not. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid does appear, though, to be encouraging states to relax a lot of the rules. In the private insurance market, it is something that insurers have been increasingly willing to cover. They do view it as a cost savings measure. There's a lot of studies on savings in terms of people seeing their physician less, going to the emergency room less, and there's some sense that it can drive down overall healthcare utilization and cost. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine what technology has done in other areas of, of the economy where it makes things so much more efficient. In some ways, certainly parts of the healthcare system wouldn't want that. I think so. I mean, there's a lot of very entrenched financial incentives for the status quo. You have hospitals and labs and medical practices that have built up a vast infrastructure to see patients in person. They can make a very good case that it's medically better for patients to come in and to be seen in person. It can be more efficient to get your lab work done right there. Maybe you see a general practitioner and then you're there and you see a specialist after that. And the financial incentives are just uh, you know, far superior also in terms of billing and the billing can escalate with the severity of the case um, and the type of treatment. And that nuance is not yet there for telemedicine billing for the most part. So that's another thing that would have to change. You know, there's always a question of uh, access to healthcare and whether you want to promote access and promote utilization uh, and whether it will ultimately lead to better medical outcomes. And I think that's the case with telemedicine. So for example, it would be wonderful if someone who is elderly or incapacitated or not particularly mobile, uh, for them to be able to see a doctor online and not have to go to a doctor's office in person. It can be a wonderful time-saving measure for them. It can be convenient. It can be accessible and easy. The flip side of that is that one can imagine where people start deciding they're going to check in with their doctor a lot more for minor concerns and ailments that can gum up the system. And that could also drive up costs if the physicians and the nurses are, are charging each time somebody logs on and each time somebody has a question that may not really be medically necessary to address in the moment. Removing some friction could actually paradoxically increase costs as well. 
I feel like, you know, we're all going through this quarantine in different ways, obviously, but it's certainly creating lots of new habits. I mean, are people having positive experiences with telemedicine thus far? You know, I think it's all all depends on an individual case. It's obviously efficient for patients, and I think it all depends on the use case. If you're home and you can't go out now or you don't want to go out, it can be great because you can get a prescription filled or you can, if you have a chronic condition like diabetes, you can check in with your doctor or medical practitioners to check your blood sugar and things like that. So I think it does have a lot of positives. I think it all comes down to how comfortable you are with the technology how comfortable you are interacting on the phone and whether you feel that you need a face-to-face visit with the doctor as well. And that's on a case-by-case basis, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be so fascinating to see, you know, beyond just COVID, how this changes medicine. I mean, I have one anecdote already that I've seen, which is that my wife had a eye doctor scheduled for next week. And the other day the phone rang and it was the, the office calling. I actually picked up and I was sure that they were looking to cancel the appointment or reschedule it for months from now. But in fact, when when my wife spoke to the receptionist, she was pretty aggressive in trying to get her to just switch to a telehealth appointment on the on the same day. So she's going to have her eyes checked via Zoom or, or some version of that. I, I mean, I, I hope it works, but that was a real eye, eye-opening experience, you know, no pun intended. Yeah, I mean, th- there are definitely a lot of diagnostics and preventive care that can be done at home. Um, and um, there's a lot of companies out there that are doing more with remote monitoring and censoring technologies and just sending people little home care kits that include like a mobile device and supplies to check your hearing and, and your throat and temperature. And theoretically, all of this data can now be sent back to a medical practice and evaluated and looked at pretty quickly. So there's a lot of there's a lot of efficiency to be gained and a lot of convenience, I think, for both the medical offices and for patients. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, you note in the story, people aren't necessarily fully on board with this, at least prior to coronavirus. Why do you think it's not gotten a better reception to date? And what are sort of some of the hurdles that are that are still there? Well, again, I think it's a perception that you won't get the level of care through uh, an online visit or through a phone visit that you would if you saw your doctor in person. That's on the patient side. And, and I think there's resistance on the doctor side as well. You know, they didn't go to medical school and then intern and specialize for years and years and years to practice, you know, online assembly line medicine and see patient after patient after patient online. I think a lot of physicians value that FaceTime, that real experience of seeing a patient in person, and they need to do that as well. So I think there's resistance as well in the physician community, especially amongst the specialists. And then again, I think it's just the infrastructure that has been built and the billing practices that will be very difficult to crack. You know, we've seen a lot of other disruptive technologies change entire industries like Airbnb and Uber with ride sharing. And a lot of people view telemedicine as being a disruptive technology like that. But, you know, healthcare and medicine is its own regulatory, you know, enormous beast. And yeah. uh, it's, it's not something that is e- just easily going to be cracked by technology. I, I don't think the technology puzzle or piece is what is holding it back. The technology is certainly there. You know, it's the billing practices, it's the workflow practices, it's the privacy concerns. 
It's also concerns about medical malpractice. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, hurdles that would have to be overcome for, I think, for it to really go mainstream. Yeah. And it's certainly not unrelated that we've had such massive political fights, right, over the future of, of medicine. I mean, I, I think it's a very similar issue. People just take this very seriously. It's their health and it's, 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 their, it's their lives and their families' lives. Right. I mean, again, like for, for basic preventive care or for urgent care, or if you're a kid, you think your kid has a flu or an earache, it can be great. And it is expanding. I mean, the, you know, don't get me wrong. They are finding a lot of new uses for telemedicine. It's, it's, it's making a lot of headway in the behavioral health area. Um, it's making headway in management of chronic diseases and diagnostics. So there's a lot of use cases for which the technology is there and you can see that the efficiency gains would be there as well. I think it will also just require a changed mindset on the part of physicians and patients as well. From an investment point of view, there have been a couple very clear ways to see the trend in telemedicine playing out, even in the last few weeks and months. Tell us more about what you are seeing there. Well, it's a pretty fragmented market, but the biggest winner in the uh, stock market, I would say so far, that's directly related to these trends is Teladoc Health. They're the largest publicly traded telemedicine company. They uh, have said that their visits uh, have surged over 100% um, in just the last month. It's still a relatively small company with a market cap of about $13 billion, but the stock has tripled over the last 52 weeks. It's up- Tripled? Yeah, it's gone from around $50 a share to 167 or around 166 as of Friday's close. So it's up about 100% this year. Much of those gains have come just in the last few months as well. So that raises some questions. Is this the kind of stock that you'd want to buy now? Uh, it's blown past a lot of analyst price targets already. It's not profitable on an earnings per share basis. They generated about $32 million in operating cash flow on revenue of, I think, about $553 million in 2019. So a small company. But I mean, it, this this is very reminiscent to me of, of Zoom video communications, right, which is the, the one big player in video conferencing, which has had such a surge. Can you really look at the at earnings, I mean, it's the it's the opportunity and how much our behaviors could change going forward that some investors are at least thinking about, right? Right, right. Like this isn't a stock that's trading anywhere remotely on earnings right now. It's a relatively early stage growth company, and they are trading on things like their increase in their membership roles, their operating margins. Uh, they do a fair amount of mergers and acquisitions. You have some pretty amazing numbers in your story too about how Teladox has started to build its business. They're, they're involved with like a huge number of the Fortune 500 companies, for instance. Yeah. So they say that they have contracts with 40% of the Fortune 500 companies. They also partner uh, with health insurance plans, uh, with physician practices, with hospitals. Um, so they're really trying to expand this beyond the traditional employer market where telemedicine is offered as a health benefit. They also say that there is a addressable market in the U.S. of up to $30 billion, which would probably include software and hardware and virtual physician services. I think we're all grateful for telemedicine right now. It's certainly helping to get us through the crisis. The big question is whether the behavioral changes that we've started to see in the last month are, are going to stick around. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, I think it all depends on whether people change their behavior, whether medical practitioners are willing and open to change their behavior, whether the government is open to making the emergency measures that they've put in place during the crisis permanent. You know, will we all focus more on our health and preventive medicine um, when the pandemic ends? What if all the, the most of the population becomes inoculated or immune to the coronavirus? Will we just go back to business as usual? I, I think there'll be a push towards doing that. But then again, we don't know how the crisis is eventually going to play out. If we're going to have new waves of infections, maybe in the fall or in 2021, we don't yet know if the vaccines um, are going to be effective or when they'll um, be widely available. So there's a lot of unknowns right now. Again, I think the technology puzzle is coming together. I think the regulatory puzzle could come together too. So a lot of the pieces could come together and it'll just depend on you know behavioral changes and whether society becomes more open to it. Um, I think there's a good possibility that it does. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Darren. Thanks, Alex. To read Darren's story on the future of medicine, check out the latest issue of Barron's. And as always, barrons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Litzhoff and Katie Ferguson. We'll be back next week. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.